Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today, we have a special interview. I'll be speaking with one of my collaborators on the Deporting Ottoman Americans Project uh, about the subject of uh, U.S. immigration policy during the interwar period, and more specifically about the policies of, of deportation. So for our Ottoman History Podcast listeners, this topic is not directly relevant to the Ottoman Empire, but as you'll be hearing a little bit, Deportation policies and immigration policies are a great way of looking at how the United States is connected to other parts of the world, of course, uh, and indeed how connections with other parts of the world were um, formative in shaping um, debates about identity, race, uh, and class uh, in the United States between the First and Second World Wars. Our guest is Emily Pope Obida. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Emily Pope Obida has her PhD in history from University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She's currently a postdoctoral fellow at the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Uh, her dissertation was entitled, When in Doubt, Deport, and that's a quote from a document, I think, <laughs> mm -hmm. U.S. Deportation Policy and the Local Policing of Global Migration in the 1920s. Uh, and uh, she's currently working on preparing a book manuscript based on that project, as well as some other projects that we'll talk about in just a minute. So Emily, before we get to some of the questions that I have for you as somebody trying to wade into the history uh, of immigration in the United States and, of course, the subject of deportation, I wanted to ask you to briefly give our audience a sense of uh, the book project and some of your new projects that are developing out of your dissertation research. Absolutely. So my dissertation focuses primarily on deportation from the United States in the 1920s. And it really came out of this sense that there was increasingly some, some growing attention to deportation as a policy, but very little attention to its actual enforcement and what it looked like on the ground and what the actual construction of the modern deportation state looked like. Um, so, so my dissertation and, and the book project that came out of it are organized around kind of the nesting scales of space and authority at which deportation operated. So I look at the global level and the various kinds of connections and coordination that deportation required with nations around the world. I look at the national level and the ways that deportation was used to create and enforce a certain vision of the nation and its boundaries, including in, in you know, unexpected spaces like deportations from spaces of American empire. Mm. Um, at the local level, I look at how important local enforcement is to the actual mechanism of deportation. Um, at a period where there was still a very small immigration service workforce, all of this was incredibly contingent upon local cooperation and really local initiative from everyone from vigilantes to police forces mm. to medical institutions. And then I look at the, the actual institutions and the way that the modern deportation state created a kind of unprecedented level of centralized coordination between a variety of different institutions of the state, institutions that we think of as benevolent, like hospitals and, and asylums, mm. as well as ones that are more clearly carceral, like prisons and reformatories, and the ways that they were knit together all across the country to create these spaces um, of the deportation dragnet, basically. Mm -hmm. And then on the final level, I go down to talking about deportation um, in terms of detention and the newly created train systems for mm. enforcing its actual removal. You know, one of the things that deportation does is it brings the process of boundary making into the interior of the country, into spaces that we don't think of as having anything to do with borders. And so having a centralized train system for doing that is actually really crucial to how that process grew over time. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm really arguing that in the 1920s, as opposed to just an episodic sort of response to the, the First World War and, you know, the first Red Scare, that the deportation was actually becoming 
something much more mundane, but also therefore more dangerous. Yeah. This was becoming a really bureaucratic, centralized system for, for mass removal. And so, so in the scholarship, this time period is seen as one of insularity and xenophobia mm -hmm. in the United States, as well as many other parts of the world. And perhaps the, um, the exclusion and deportation of, say, Chinese-American immigrants uh, is very well known, um, relatively well known, at least among historians of the United States. Other groups, uh, such as, of course, Mexican migrants who came to the U.S., may be known to our listeners as well. Um, but as your research, and, and especially your ongoing projects show, groups that maybe aren't normally considered as potential subjects of deportation in, in large numbers also came into what you said was this more mundane and, and you know comprehensive and, and far-reaching uh, policy of deportation. Um, I think one of the, the really interesting things is that the 1920s, the numbers really just explode. They go from about 2,700 in 1920 to mm -hmm. 16, 000, over 16,600 in 1930. So that's a massive um, oh. increase over the course of the decade. And people really don't look at what's what's going on and, and the kind of slow and steady ways that that system is increasing. They look at some of the more spectacular, notable things like the mass deportation of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans once yeah. the Depression starts. So, so interestingly, a lot of this has to do with the quota acts. And when we think yeah. of the 1920s and immigration policy, that's kind of the first thing that comes to mind. But what the quota acts did in terms of deportation was that they created these new categories of deportability that that really increased the association of criminality and immigration yeah. status. So you now have people who are who are deemed illegal by nothing other than virtue of being in the country without authorization. Their presence in that space is the only thing that makes them criminal. And deportation is a, a really critical mechanism for enforcing that and for creating yeah. that that criminal status. And so that's right. being applied. In, in large numbers to, to groups like Southern and Eastern Europeans, the same groups that, that the quota acts were targeting. But it's also kind of, if you look at the actual numbers, they undo a lot of what we assume about the mm -hmm. period. There's already very large numbers of, of Mexican deportations. But actually, up until the mid-20s, the largest group of people being deported numerically by nationality are Canadians. Mm. Um, and if you look numerically by by what the I, the immigration service is calling race or ethnicity, the largest number are other than uh, Mexicans are actually English, oh. you know, many of whom are Canadian. Mm -hmm. um, so, so a lot of these patterns don't actually match what we think. But then there's also, you know, one of the things that my new research is focusing on is some of the groups you, you might might not associate with this period. So um, during this period, black immigrants, which which the Immigration Service um, at the time, they, they defined immigrants both by nationality and by what they called race, yeah. which in this case for a black immigrant, they were black parentheses African on, on their documents. Mm -hmm. And so um, those immigrants were often being deported anywhere throughout the, the 20s, anywhere from about four to six times more than their actual presence in the overall immigration population wow. would suggest. So there's clearly a, a heavy degree of racial targeting that's taking place with this. One of the things that's really important with this is that it's so locally based. This is not something where you can just say, this is what the U.S. was trying to do with deportation during this period. You have to really look and say, this is what any given locality was making their enforcement priority. Right. And so in Chicago during the 20s, that meant targeting suspected Sicilian gangsters, you know, mm. who who they, the city of Chicago thought the deportation would be an effective way to clean up their reputation as a hotbed of mobster crime. And so they had all of these raids against Italian-American neighborhoods. And, and in many cases, they ended up finding out that the immigration service was legally incapable of deporting a lot of the people that they rounded up. But mm -hmm. these raids and, and these, yeah. you know, the practices of targeting still had a massive effect on these communities. In Minnesota, it might have been targeting Finnish radicals um, in the timber right. fields. In Arizona, it was local racially motivated vigilante groups targeting Mexicans in mining camps. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so there were all of these different different patterns that played out that had nothing to do necessarily with any single consolidated national agenda, but more with the growing realization that deportation could serve as this incredibly powerful tool of a lot of different agendas right. outside of the, the more obvious policies of exclusion that were much more federally controlled. Right. And, and through the lens of deportation, we can see 
the loose mixing of conceptions of race with conceptions mm -hmm. of criminality and of course morality as well. Absolutely. And, and you, you've already mentioned the black experience of deportation in the U.S. during this time, but I know your work also looks at how uh, African Americans viewed uh, deportation policies and immigration policies during the period and mm -hmm. how they may have differed or been similar from other people in the United States at the time. There's this kind of perception that when we talk about responses to immigration that we can talk about the native-born response as mm -hmm. somehow, you know, a, a neutral category, but but in reality, it's so often coded implicitly as white, when obviously native-born includes a lot of different groups, in yeah. including some of the same ethnic categories of, of people who are being deported. So when you look at those responses, you see a lot of really complicated discourses around the idea of citizenship, ideas of non-citizenship versus second-class citizenship, the rights of belonging within a society, the what a government owes its people, both native-born mm -hmm. and denizen. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of complicated responses that come out of that and a lot of critique of the racial project that the U.S. is carrying out against immigrants. Um, you know, when you think about that period, Marcus Garvey is deported in 1927, probably the most well-known and prominent black activist of his period. He's deported back to Jamaica. Right. And you see kind of the incredible power of the nascent deportation state to clamp down on dissent and to really corral um, movements through this. And, right. and that's something that we see kind of again and again throughout history, deportation used not only to create criminal identities, but also to criminalize certain political ideologies as well. Yeah, and uh, certainly this is also a period in the United States where we have a segregation in Jim Crow in the South. And so um, even full citizenship for everyone in the U.S. is not a concept that has actually uh, crystallized or at least come to actually be manifest in policies and law. Absolutely. When I was doing my research at the National Archives and I was kind of developing this, this section about trains, one of the things that I found kind of the most striking that I, that I came across were these debates um, in correspondence between the state of Georgia and the federal government, the, the immigration commissioner. And they were basically debating whether the immigration service was allowed to put train cars full of racially integrated deportees that would have to travel through Georgia to get to the ports of exit to get these deportees out of the country. And Georgia, the state of Georgia didn't want to make an exception right. unless there were certain kinds of bars on the window and certain numbers of guards, because otherwise they were violating state segregation laws. And so right. even the actual enforcement of deportation required running up against all of these levels of local authority, all of these different local... Yeah. Um, racial politics that were really complicated. Right. And ultimately we find, and our listeners will find this in, this in the Deporting Ottoman American series, that, you know, there's a certain absurdity to some of the way in which these policies are applied precisely due to the incommensurability of different notions of justice and law that are simultaneously operating side by side in different parts of the United States at both the federal uh, and state level. Uh, and it's certainly through through the stories of, of migrants, people who came to the U.S. and were either deported or fought to not be deported, we can see some of those dynamics uh, uh, brought to light. Some of the, the most kind of absurd things are where the federal government finds itself completely unable to even figure out the national identity of a certain immigrant. So, you know, one of the most basic and most often overlooked things in deportation scholarship is that of course, deportation is never, you know, the sole and all-powerful U.S. getting to be the pure and only arbiter of its will. It requires another country to make that agreement and yeah. accept this deportee back. And the U.S. gets into all of these complicated situations where it can't actually legibly ascribe a certain nationality to somebody, where a person refuses documents, where, you know, the U.S. doesn't have the diplomatic relations it needs, where... Um, you know, individuals are, are telling all sorts of stories where individuals are even using the deportation system to get a free ride home when they're ready to go. And so there's all of these ways that the story you read in the archives is really one of a fumbling, confused, bureaucratic system that is not quite ready for the full implications of this new regime. And we're going to be talking a lot more about that. We're going to take a quick music break and be right back <laughs> with some more questions about uh, deportation policy in the United States in the 1920s. 
with Emily Pope Ovita. Stay tuned. back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Emily Pope Ubida. We're talking about uh, the history of immigration and deportation in the United States during the interwar period and especially the 1920s. So Emily, we've already been talking a bit about how deportation policies are evolving and growing and expanding uh, during the 1920s uh, and into the Depression era and how, in fact, they're messy and they bring out a lot of messy dynamics but more broadly, in the historiography of immigration in the United States, uh, policies like deportation uh, and other forms of exclusion have increasingly come to be rather central. While many people see the United States as a nation of immigrants, it also has always been a nation where some immigrants are more welcome than others. Um, and historians like Mei Nye have argued that uh, the exclusion in immigration policy has actually been really central to the making of both the United States and its identity. And I guess you're making a similar argument about the specific practice of deportation. Um, so could you explain more about what you see as the role of deportation in that process? Deportation is just such an unusual phenomenon. And a lot of times it's talked about as just kind of the enforcement arm of the immigration state. But I think it really is its own entity in, in some really interesting ways. While exclusion at the border is really gives us an opportunity to think about the priorities of the federal government in terms of selecting its population, deportation is in some ways even more revealing by, you know, the fact that it actually removes people after they've resided in the U.S., that it... Um, you know, targets people who've established lives and families in the U.S. And it, it's really an even more invasive form of modern state power in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, it literally gives a state the power to exile individuals from their homes, tear apart families, expel communities. And it gives local authorities so much leverage and discretion as to who they're deporting. And, you know, deportation serves a lot of different purposes within the modern state. It can regulate non-normative sexual behaviors. It can address fears about criminal populations. It can be a way of targeting um, perceptions about medical pathologies. Mm -hmm. um, it has all of these different things. But at one of the most basic levels, it's also a fundamental tool of modern capitalism. It, it provides in some ways a safety valve of sorts, a mechanism for mm -hmm. constricting and expanding the labor force as needed. And that's really a lot of what's going on at the roots of it is, is these forms of racialized capitalism that depend on having that kind of control on creating these vulnerable populations that are never fully protected under law. And, and so even more than just deportation as being really important for, for U.S. history, the creation of a condition of deportability yeah. and the way that hangs over a lot of communities is really important. Um, you know, you mentioned May Nye. Um, in a lot of ways, that was something that prompted my project. Back maybe about 15 years ago, she had an article where she made a statement that deportation was not invented in the 1920s, but it is then that it came of age. And that idea of looking at what does it mean for a new state bureaucracy to really come of age has been something that's prompted me. A lot of our modern immigration state is not necessarily as well developed by that point as we might think. Up until the 1870s and 1880s, most immigration restriction and, and most deportation that did exist happened on a state level. And it was often really yeah. intertwined with like local poor law and the idea of kind of removing paupers from state boundaries. Um, and it's only in the 1870s and, and more so in the 1880s and beyond that you start to get a series of federal immigration laws that add all these new categories of excludable or deportable people. And it really shows a lot about the values of the nation if you look at them. It's everything from prostitutes and polygamists to imbeciles and idiots. I mean, these are the official categories yeah. to, you know, one of the most relevant ones is those likely to become a public charge. And this idea of policing poverty and policing dependency and policing the possibility of future dependency through removal is something that's really fundamental to how this system developed over time. 
And we, you can obviously see how, especially during the Depression era, how such policies could actually play into populist democratic opinion among voters who, who are concerned that immigrants are competition for labor and whatnot. So while we can see the state's role, and, and of course you mentioned the role of providing the safety valve for capitalism, it, it also goes right down to you know, the individual voters who ultimately elect who makes the laws. Right, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the conversations are not just about who's going to steal our jobs. It's who's filling up all the beds in the local hospitals. Who's Who are the majority of people in our local jails? Who are the people who are taking these various resources of the state? And there's a very strong claim by a lot of people in the public that those resources should be maintained for citizens only. And this, this whole growing process of deportation is really important for drawing firmer boundaries between citizen and non-citizen in ways that mm. weren't necessarily as pertinent in an earlier period. And so it really changes a lot of those dynamics. It also really expands the actual power of the state. It, it gives them new access to individuals' lives. It, it allows them to wield those those powers in in kind of unprecedented ways. And it's also hugely important for the development of the carceral state. You've got this population that is increasingly being criminalized, being detained, being withheld from from their full legal rights. And that's a really significant shift. And it's really important for a lot of the ways that we kind of come to understand the punitive powers of, of the federal government. So let's talk a little bit more about how exactly deportation became a widespread governmental practice in the United States. And what I mean is, what were the laws that were passed and what were the institutions uh, and bodies that were created, bodies of enforcement and surveillance, uh, in order to expand uh, this policy to such an extent? At this period, a lot of this is still very haphazard, you know, so you don't necessarily have a fully consolidated system till considerably later. When you think about institutions like detention, you know, some of the cases I'm looking at in the 20s, you have instances where the local authorities are like, well, we don't have anywhere to detain this immigrant till we deport them. We're going to pay a private citizen 75 cents a day to put them up in their house Mm -hmm. so that we have surveillance over them, and yet we don't actually have a fully functioning detention system yet. You have... um, you know, the growth of this bureaucracy. So by this point, the Immigration Service has about 35 sub-district offices all over the country, including offices in um, Honolulu, Puerto Rico, and Alaska. And so you have this growing infrastructure. You have even more minor sub-district offices, especially clustered along the borders. In 1924, that's the first year that the Border Patrol is created. And so you have the, the creation of this additional enforcement arm that's going on. But again, a lot of this is totally insufficient still. And so a lot of this relies very deeply, just as it does today, on collaboration with local law enforcement and and other local institutions. Um, But in terms of of legislation, you start to get a series of laws throughout the 1890s and, and the first decade of the 20th century that add these new categories, generally around different categories of crime, things like crimes of moral turpitude, this ridiculously hazy term that even legislators themselves say is so vague as to be useless, um, you know, to to different um, physical diseases that are added to mental conditions. But you also get new terms of how long a person can be in the country and still be deportable. And that's a really important shift, I think, in terms of thinking about what deportation means and and this idea of creating a more permanently vulnerable class of people. You're expanding the time at which you're saying, this person is still an other, this person is still a foreigner. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter how established they are here. They will always be legally marked as different from, from the rest of this population. And when you say always, do you mean truly indefinitely they change the law so that no matter how long someone had been in the United States, if they were subject to certain uh, clauses in the law, they could be deported? or how, so what was it, the, yeah, yeah, it depends on um, the particular thing. So there's certain crimes that have over history um, actually expanded to be always. But for the most part, it was um, increases from like a year to three years to five years that were actually deportable um, based on the type of offense. And then, as I mentioned, the other major thing that's shifting is is this kind of creation of a whole different category of somebody who was criminalized based on on being there over quota. So once you have numerical caps, 
And you start to get more and more people who um, are being detained and deported for entry without visa. And this was particularly pertinent for a lot of Mexican immigrants because there were no um, quota caps on, on immigrants from the Western Hemisphere, including Mexico. Um, somebody couldn't be deported for being over quota, but if they had entered without inspection and didn't have the proper visa paperwork, right. they could still be deported for that. So a lot of these much more trivial things are going on at the same time as these more serious crimes are being um, increased in terms of length of, of time. Let's talk about that more. So I'm very curious to know in general numerical sense, what percentage of people who are deported simply didn't have the right papers or had entered uh, either fraudulently or, you know, secretly into the United States or, you know, this sort of bureaucratic violations that would make people subject to deportation. And in, in actual numerical terms, like, do we have a sense of how many people were, for example, perpetrators of these crimes of moral turpitude mm -hmm. that, we, that we've already kind of alluded to? Uh, who was, in, in terms of um, that profile, before talking about where were people from, who were being most targeted by deportation policies? Yeah, so that's that's something that actually starts to shift significantly over the course of that decade. So um, by at the start of the 20s, you have in some years as much as 30 to 40 percent of the immigrants who are being deported are being deported on the basis of being likely to commit or likely to become a public charge. So that's a, a really massive um, subsection of, of the population. And so this, is, this includes the poor, um, uh, maybe disabled. Right. Uh, so basically anyone who is perceived to not be fit to become a contributing member I to see. the modern, okay. you know, industrial regime. So, so this did include various kinds of disabilities. Some of those were more overt and categorized. Sometimes it was things as hazy as kind of weak or frail physical structure, mm -hmm. you know. In some cases, this was often a very gendered provision, and it was really used particularly against women who were more likely to be deemed unable to support themselves, particularly mm. if they were unmarried or were not living with parents or mm -hmm. especially if they were unmarried with children. Um, so in a lot of ways, this was also about kind of creating an association with female immigrant dependency and, mm -hmm. and the fear of what that would bring. Um, so that was a really significant part of the population. Sometimes this was for people who had actually ended up being in some way dependent on the state. Right. So so you would get people who were rounded up when they had gone to the hospital for some sort of medical treatment or had accepted public charity of some sort. Um, and, and this is something that automatically rendered them um, potentially vulnerable to deportation. In other cases, it was an assumption that was made that they could in the future become um, unable to take care of themselves based on, on whatever... So how does that transform as the 20s go on and into the 1930s? What are the new um, yeah. types of people that are being targeted by these so policies? As the 20s go on, it actually that number drops. And what really does rise in its place is um, the number of people who are being deported for visa infractions and right. for entry without um, inspection and, and for being entering over quota. One of the things that makes these numbers a little bit difficult to track is that in many cases, people's um, files actually list multiple things. So right. a person might be deported ultimately for being likely to become a public charge, which was kind of the most expansive and elastic, but their files might also mention their medical history or often in the case right. of women, it would become very clear that this was a woman who was being targeted for you know, sexual transgressions. You would get a woman who even though she was employed as a domestic, the file would talk about how she had had sexual relations with three different men she wasn't married to. And right. you know, ultimately her removal was for, for being a public charge, but there was obviously other stuff going on. One of the other things that, that expands vastly throughout this period is um, mental health yeah. deportations. And so it's something that, that um, in 1920, less than 2% of total deportations were for criteria of mental health. But but from what I've been able to tabulate, by 1926, it's nearly 10% of, of all deportations. Really? And then by the end of the decade, it's dropped back down to about 4%. But there's definitely something going on with that. And one of the things that I found that's really interesting about that is it's actually much higher in terms of the groups that you don't kind of associate with the racial projects of deportation at that time. So 
if you look at it, over 12% of Scandinavian deportations in that same year are for mental health. Over 15.5% of German deportations are for that. So it's much higher numbers than some of these other more overtly racialized groups. And there's you know, something going on in that in terms of the idea of kind of safeguarding the purity of the white ethnic by making sure it's the fit white ethnics that are right. entering the country and, and then kind of leaving these racialized others out of, of that kind of restriction. Um, so, so crime was one of the, the things that grew most strikingly. In 1921, there were only 51 individuals deported as criminals. By 1926, that was almost 800. By 1929, it was over 1,400. Um, So by the end of the decade, um, you've got it peaking at nearly 10% of overall removals for for actual crimes. Um, A smaller number of those are crimes of moral turpitude, including things like polygamy, prostitution, things like that. Um, So you've got also kind of the blurring of these lines between sexual transgressions and crimes. Those things start to be kind of clumped together in, in the national imagination yeah. and, and heavily associated with immigrants in new ways. So crime is clearly a, a, a small minority of the number of total deportation cases, but nonetheless, as the definition of criminality is expanded, so too uh, is the percentage of deportees who are depo- are sent away you know, for having committed some kind of crime. Right. And, and one of the important things that, that deportation scholars have looked at is you know, deportation is not supposed to be legally a punishment. It's, you know, an administrative process. Right. It's not supposed to be punitive. But we know, based on, on looking at some of these factors, that it really becomes a punitive act of the state. Interesting. And that's something that, that's really tied with some of these ideas about the criminality of immigrants. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Emily Pope Obida. We're talking about uh, deportation policy in the United States during the 1920s. want to remind our listeners that for a bibliography associated with this episode, as long as many other episodes in our series on deporting Ottoman Americans, all you need to do is visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we've got lots of material. So Emily, we've already talked about the sort of expanding and shifting... Uh, reasons for which people could be deported. Uh, but you've already alluded to the fact that even in implementing this uh, deportation policy, justice was not meted out equally, that some groups were targeted for deportation more than others and for different reasons. And you've mentioned the experience of black immigrants who were deported disproportionately in terms of their number um, during uh, the 1920s. So in terms of numbers, uh, what groups of, of migrants in terms of their, their place of origin were being targeted sort of disproportionately mm-hmm. uh, during the period? So one of the, the most obvious groups that was being targeted disproportionately were Chinese immigrants. So yeah. because um, of, of the continuation of Chinese exclusion policies, they were a relatively low number of, of the overall immigrants in the country, but they were quite high in terms of their percentage of, of deportees. And so that was something where it was also the only group that there was a special force, a special deportation right. force for their deportation. Um, so that was clearly a group that was kind of singled out and targeted targeted. Um, there was also quite high rates of deportation among a lot of the Southern and Eastern European groups, especially when you consider how sharply those streams of immigration were cut off by the right. quota acts. The fact that they continued throughout the late 1920s to be such a significant percentage of the overall deportations is really telling. So that's true for, for groups like Czechoslovakian immigrants, for Hungarian immigrants, for Polish immigrants, for um, Greek and Italian immigrants. Um, one of the kind of striking exceptions to that is is the U.S.'s struggles with what to do with Russian um, immigrants who could generally not be deported because of the lack of um, diplomatic relations with the yeah. Soviet Union. So that was a, a whole different challenge that that led to a lot of um, conflicts. But so a lot of these groups were being targeted in, in really disproportionate numbers. A lot of this is very regionally based. So if you look at the South and Southwest, there's very heavy numbers of, of Mexicans being deported, especially when you consider that it was harder as a Mexican immigrant to actually have 
a, an unauthorized status because of the lack of quotas. Um, they were they were quite heavily represented. Of course, once you get to know the 1930s, that expands vastly, and you get estimates of of anything from half a million to over a million. Mexicans and even Mexican-American citizens who were deported in various kinds of ways, whether full, you know, government proceedings, deportations or repatriation under various forms of pressure and government sponsorship or just kind of rounded up and, and pushed out of localities. So so that's something that shifts very sharply once you get to the 1930s. But those numbers of Mexican deportees were already growing throughout the yeah. 20s. Yeah. And you see how the, the creation of quotas uh, and uh, as well as other types of barriers to immigration in, in various uh, bureaucratic affects that kind of um, increase the number of justifications to deport someone and consider their their migration illegal. How that how that uh, kind of uh, feeds into the growth of illicit migration networks, mm-hmm. which is which is why we see uh, these large number of deportees from countries of the world where there's very strict quotas such as uh, Eastern Europe or or uh, for for Chinese because people have to enter illicitly to either come to work or to join their families in many cases Mm -hmm. this in turn sort of feeds the surveillance and deportation of illicit migrants absolutely and one I think one of the really interesting things that that looking closely at deportation can also kind of reveal is the ways in which our existing narratives about immigrants are, are overly one-dimensional, they're overly simplistic, and they don't take into account the multi-step paths that many of these migrants took before ending up in the U.S. They don't take into account the number of, of immigrants that voluntarily participated in kind of loops of return migration. But, you know, when you look at these deportation cases, a lot of times what the U.S. is struggling with, what these government bureaucrats are struggling with is that these aren't simple one-to-one travel plans. Somebody is not just coming from Italy to the U.S., they might be coming to um, South America and then to Mexico or to Cuba and then ending up in the U.S. surreptitiously or, you know, going through Canada, using these different countries as kind of back doors into the U.S. once its gates are starting to close against various kinds of European immigrants. And and this is true for, for Chinese immigrants throughout the early 20th century and late 19th century after after Chinese exclusion. And so I think deportation files really point to how much messier and more complicated immigrant stories are than we often get. So I'm very interested in this uh, convergence of discourses about race and discourses about morality. We've mm-hmm. already talked about how certain groups were disproportionately targeted uh, for deportation. Uh, and restriction of immigration. Um, but we've also mentioned the ascendance of morality and its move to the center of discourses about um, immigration, which are ultimately debates about citizenship and, and nationality, which in the U.S. Is a, is a civic concept, right? We have a civic um, belonging to the country that is based on embrace of uh, laws and ideas rather than uh, ethnicity. Of course, this is the like central debate of immigration <laughs> right. history. But so I, I'm curious about the interplay there because I know that a lot of the groups that are being targeted for deportation are sort of stigmatized as being associated with certain types of criminal activity, um, especially of the urban underground um, in, in the growing cities of the United States during this time. Uh, could you talk about um, the role of morality uh, and its shift or or its its rise uh, within deportation policy? This kind of idea that certain ethnicities have these connections with crime or immoral behavior has been one of the kind of longest standing myths that no matter how many studies disprove the the correlation between immigration status and crime, um, it's it's been remarkably pervasive and it serves to bolster a lot of different racial myths that are really important to our ideas about belonging in the nation. Um, you know, in this period, the Dillingham Commission report that had come out in 1911, it had actually shown statistically based on these kind of extensive reports that were kind of hoping to find that that immigrants were more likely to commit crimes. They actually found that they were less likely to. Yeah. But but the language around it still managed to generate these ideas that these groups were associated with crime. There's also kind of this panic going around at this period about the waves of migration, the massive migration of previous decades, and, and this idea um, that 
still manages to pop up again and again that that there's going to be the death of the white race and the you know preservation of racial purity has to be enforced through immigration restriction and some of that has to do with ideas about um, racialized sexuality mm-hmm. and and promiscuity or procreation among immigrant women there's also a lot of ways that deportation was used to kind of create a national imagination about morality. So a lot of the stories that actually entered the news, if you look at the news, it's not stories about a woman who got picked up because she went to the hospital to get treatment for an injury. It's stories about men who were discovered to be bigamists because they actually had a wife back home in the home country and also in the U.S. Or it's women who were discovered in dens of prostitution or, you know, it's um, all of these these very lurid, sensationalized stories. You have these stories about women who were turned in by a jealous lover when they were discovered to be having this affair. And, you know, all of these these ways that ideas about immigration and improper, you know, non-normative sexuality started to, to be really prominent. And there was very much um, a way of really, especially in terms of, unmarried relationships. Um, it was really one of the biggest ways that immigrant women became targeted for, for deportation. That was especially true in, in some of the cases like what I mentioned with black immigrants. A lot of the cases that I'm studying right now are of black women from the Caribbean who are often in, in kind of different forms of familiar relationships, which don't always involve marriage and, and sometimes involve different kinds of kinship structures and different kinds of child rearing structures. And these women are being um, deported on the basis of having engaged in immoral behaviors. Um, And those behaviors are not necessarily transgressions against the um, moral expectations of their own cultures. But, you know, this is a way that the U.S. can create a certain kind of racial sexual purity and and enforce it through immigration law. And so to what extent? Was were these deportation policies a kind of political consensus, both within the government but within the the voting populace as well? Is this the kind of thing that kind of, that cut across party lines? Is this the kind of thing the way that military is increasingly today, where you know the government policy surrounding deportation was largely um, disconnected from actual um, party politics and voting behaviors? Uh, to what extent did people uh, criticize deportation policy or how did the press and, and, and uh, you know, public call for deportation in some cases? On the whole, this was a largely consensus-based thing. Um, so if you look at kind of the politics around the quota acts, for instance, um, other than a few congressmen from very immigrant-heavy districts of major urban cities, there were not a lot of voices against this. In fact, there were a lot of voices who called it for it to be a much stricter and more comprehensive ban against immigration. So I think a lot of that comes out of this post-World War I period. You've got this sense that, you know, the war is over, um, interventionism has not worked, there's a, there's a pullback towards a more isolationist um, perspective, and you've also got things like the waves of radicalism that come out of, out of the 1919 period, these waves of strikes, these things that are very heavily associated in the press with kind of immigrants um, kind of upsetting the status quo and and not um, integrating properly into the economy and and the state. Um, So there is kind of that. There's also, you know, there's been these, a lot of historians who've talked about the idea that immigration politics tends to make for strange bedfellows, and it doesn't always break along some of the normal coalition lines of liberal and conservative. And so you've got things like the the labor movement of this time, you know, especially the, the conservative AFL, who are very supportive of immigration restriction and deportation and on the basis that this is going to be economic competition. There's a lot of critiques that immigrants are, are accepting low wages and are driving down the standard of living for the American worker. And so you get a lot of that. Um, but then, of course, you've also got the more extreme side of this, which is racial nativist, eugenicists, um, and, and all of these other immigrant fo- anti-immigrant forces who are really coalescing around this idea of removing undesirables from society. And there are some forces that push back against this, But 
outside of immigrant communities, it's largely in the radical communities. So you have a, a variety of radical groups during this period that are organizing around this. You know, you have various coalitions. Some of this is happening internationally, so there are some coalitions that develop across country lines to try and protect various deportees. But often those are also focused on the more kind of the very small number of people who are actually deported for radicalism and, and these kind of more sensational figures. The idea of people being deported for political dissent really generates this idea of free speech and, and right. defending free speech, but that wasn't representative of the typical deportation, and so it's a very small part of it. There were um, some progressive era women's groups and other, other kind of progressive or, or liberal groups that came down on the side that deportation in and of itself wasn't necessarily a problem, but it was being implemented in excessive ways. This yeah. was particularly true um, in terms of critiques of some of the abuses of the, the nascent you know, detention systems and, and the train systems and some of the conditions that they met with on, in places like Ellis Island. And some of it was about the deportations of women and children. There was also um, considerably more pushback against um, deportations um, that broke up families and this idea that that deportation shouldn't create family instability. There was also, in some cases, some pushback against deportations that were seen to be kind of, in some ways, a de facto form of, of extradition to death for people who might be going back to conditions where they would face persecution or, mm -hmm. or even death in, you know, places like Mussolini's Italy, where a lot of these deportees were, were very much at risk. Um, so there were some pushback against things like that. But on the whole, there was, I would say, a fairly large political consensus. And of course, this really varies locality to locality. So one of the things you see looking at immigration service files during this period is that there's a lot of debate back and forth between the commissioner general who writes out these, these regular memos kind of either congratulating or shaming different local sub-offices for how well they're participating in this project and how effectively they're doing this. Of course, that's all complicated because they're always asking for more funds and saying, well, we can't do this work without more appropriations from Congress. So Congress is very for deportation, but not always willing to actually put their mon the money where um, their mouths are on terms of that. So there's this idea that this new system presents vast possibilities, but it's not necessarily something that's that's kind of fully committed to in, in terms of funding. Well, Emily, this is all fascinating background, and uh, our listeners are going to see that in our Deporting Ottoman Americans series, we see how all of these policies in this climate affected uh, individual lives and subjective experiences of migration and deportation in different ways. And so I want to conclude this interview by asking what, capacity individuals who were targeted for deportation had to resist the implementation of those policies to defend themselves legally or if extra legally if that was the dominant way what type of legal representation was available and how common it was for such people who are often um, not necessarily uh, in strong economic or social standing uh, to actually have their own legal representation that would defend uh, their interests yeah, so during this period, legal representation is really quite rare. Um, and it's generally, you only see it in the case of um, some of these kind of broader roundups. So in Chicago in the 1920s, when there were these major raids of Italian-American neighborhoods, there were some efforts on behalf of like Italian-American community organizations to furnish their own lawyers to help defend some of these people. Although a lot of those lawyers themselves took a stand that they were not going to participate in defending the actual criminals as they perceived it, and they were not going to defend those that they felt tarnished the Italian reputation in Chicago. So there were some limitations even within that. But even that was rare, to have that kind of community um, assistance in terms of, of legal funds. Um, a lot of, uh, as I mentioned, the radicals who, who were under deportation proceedings did end up having legal representation often furnished by, by various organizations. 
Um, and there were some high profile cases, like there were some people who ended up under deportation proceedings and got a lot of press for it who were, you know, some sort of low scale countesses or, or movie stars or, you know, in some cases there were some famous actors or musicians or um, athletes of various sorts who were deported. So there were some people who were able to kind of leverage their status for that. But the average impoverished deportee being, you know, deported for the crime of of having accepted public assistance was not likely to have legal representation. Right. Beyond a public defender. Uh, no. Not even? It, no. They were not even able to have a public defender. So they were put in front of a hearing board, but they did not have access to legal representation of even that sort. And here often the hearing took place with an interpreter. Right. Hopefully a good one. <laughs> yeah. And and that's something that the more you read through those cases, the more it just seems ridiculous. If you look at them, some of the questions are asked, some of the questions are not asked. Some of the people who are brought in in those hearings, some of the ways that the transcripts of these hearings actually th show that somebody is saying, I don't understand what you're asking. I don't know what you're saying. I just want to stay here. And, you know, they're really not getting any any real sort of defense. In some cases, there's some exceptions where, where other countries got involved. So some people were able to appeal to their national consulate and actually get some support and defense that way. Um, again, that wasn't necessarily available to your average deportee, but there were some recourses for some immigrants. Some immigrants attempted to do things like say, I'm not unwilling to leave the U.S., but I really need to not go back to X country. Can you agree for a voluntary departure to another place? In rare cases, that was granted. More often than not, it wasn't. That was more likely to be granted for people fleeing governments that the U.S. was not on such friendly terms right. with. Um, so for the most part, immigrants did not have a lot of, of different recourses. There were people who, you know, escaped from detention. There were also a lot of people who died in detention. Um, right. You know, there were there were different ways that people attempted to get out of this system. There were some people who released on bond while waiting for their hearing and did jump on. So you do come across some of those files. But for the most part, most immigrants went through this system with, with really very little support. Well, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in our installments of Deporting Ottoman Americans, uh, the individual stories of people who, for various reasons, found themselves in sort of the clutches of the state facing deportation, and especially those people with particularly complicated cases that inevitably involved not just uh, multiple levels of the uh, United States legal administration, but also foreign governments precisely um, by virtue of their uh, ambiguous status of nationality. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for this interview. It's been a pleasure talking to you about your research. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a great opportunity to be here. This has been some very valuable information for our Deporting Ottoman Americans series, where our listeners will hear much more from Emily Pope Obida. Um, I want to encourage you all to check out that series on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you'll also find a bibliography associated with um, this episode and, and other episodes of relevance. Thank you for listening and tune in next time. That's all for now.